Jesus, Batman, and my Aunt Amy. <clears throat> no, this is not the Holy Trinity, but it is a trio of people that I wanted to invite to my birthday party when I was like four years old. My mom asked me, she's like, Jared, now who do you want to invite to your birthday party? So I named the three coolest people that I knew at the time. Jesus, duh, right? Batman, obvious. And my Aunt Amy, which when my mom told my Aunt Amy that she was included in such an illustrious group, Jesus and Batman, she was quite honored to say the least, right? <laughs> but that was a, a birthday guest list that I will not forget. Well, my name is Jared Irvine, and I'm the pastor of Junior High Ministries. And this morning, basically every pastor is away at the marriage retreat, and me being currently at this moment unmarried, although in 55 days, but who's counting? I will be getting married. Yeah. You guys are very nice. But today, it's not that day, so I have been called into service and I'm happy to do so this morning. Um, so I picked a passage this morning, John chapter two, verses one through 11. It is about a wedding. Wedding's on my brain, I guess. But I mentioned my birthday guest list which included Jesus, Batman, and my Aunt Amy. Because at this wedding, this Israelite wedding, Jesus was on the guest list. How cool is that? Now, Jesus didn't come to my birthday party in his bodily form because he is sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. But he was, in John chapter 2, walking around planet Earth in the flesh, and he came to this wedding. Now, that's cool. Let's just stop and think about that. Jesus did not live such an abnormal life that he never attended a wedding. That, you know, normal human life, we attend such celebratory functions as a birthday party, and an office party, maybe, or a wedding. Now, Jesus is an extraordinary person, but he's also a fully human being, and he did a fully human being action, such as, do you want to come to our wedding? Yeah, I can make it. Jesus was there. Now, Jesus is at this wedding, and it's not recorded in Scripture just because, hey, did you know Jesus went to a wedding? Because Jesus did something at this wedding that was extraordinary. That Jesus did something at this wedding that Batman would be powerless to do. And my Aunt Amy, God bless her, would have no chance. Jesus turns water into wine. And in the process, does something that a superhero might do. He, would, he saved something. He saved a wedding that was in crisis. But he does so much more, you see, at this wedding. Jesus 
by doing this action of turning water into wine, he gives us a foretaste of the kingdom of God and in his actions declares and reveals that the king has arrived, that the kingdom of God is here. And he does that at a perfect wedding, right? A perfect occasion, occasion of celebration. That's how Jesus in the Gospel of John reveals, manifests, it says, his glory. So let's read the passage. It's in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana, in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have hosted some sort of function, some sort of party, right? And so as a host, your worst nightmare would be what? Running out of something, right? Because when you're hosting something, you have two questions that's generally recurring in your brain, right? It is, are my guests having a good time? And is there enough food? Do we have enough, like, crucial supply? Do we have enough drink for people? And if the answer is no, there's not enough food, then the answer to the first question is probably they're not having a good time. And so you're constantly checking and worried about, do we have enough? Because you don't want a crisis of running out. Well, that's what happens at this wedding. They run out. They got nothing. And this week I was trying to remember a time in my life growing up when my parents hosted people, had people over at our house, and we didn't have enough food. And I, I couldn't think of one time because my dad, oh, that's right, he's, you're laughing already. Yeah, my dad, <laughs> Is a generous guy. He loves to cook. He's a fantastic chef. 
Now, let's say we're having four people over, a modest little gathering. He would buy enough food for 40 people. You know, just in case the, the neighborhood, like randoms, strangers, wanted to drop by and have some food. So as a, as a child, I, I'm remembering like, hey, you guys want seconds? You still hungry? You want thirds? Here's a goodie bag to take home. Hope you had a good time. Because my father didn't want this to happen. He didn't want their situation where we run out of stuff. And so there's that phrase, whether that was explicitly told to me or I observed it implicitly by the way he overbought, it is it's better to have too much than not enough. Because you don't want your guests going home hungry, unfulfilled, dissatisfied. Well, at this wedding, they didn't do that. My dad wasn't running <laughs> the wine list. And so they ran out. And at Jewish weddings, they were like, it was a wedding that lasted like seven days, super long. And an honor-shame culture, if they're going to run out of something, that's terrible. That's shame on the family. And no one's going to want to do anything with them ever again. And so it's a big thing. It's a crisis. And so Jesus' mother is there, and somehow she's connected to what's going on. She knows that the crisis has just hit. It's not we're running out. It's we're out. We got nothing. Not even one drop. And yet, no one has discovered this yet. So in her alarm, she goes to Jesus. And she, as his el her eldest son, wants to get him involved. And so she asks him to do something. She's like, they've run out of wine. Can you do something, basically? That's what she's saying. And Jesus, you know, he gives a surprising answer. Right? I mean, Jesus doesn't say, yes, mother, as a perfectly obedient child, I shall do anything and everything that I can do to help. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? This is not teenage Jesus. Like, dude, just leave me alone. Like, I'm, no, this is fully human male Jesus. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is reluctant to do anything at all. Now, he's not being what you would call rude at this point. He is being disengaging. He is distancing himself from his mother. But by using that term woman, and it sounds atrocious, right, to 21st century English speakers, woman, right? What if you said to your mom? I would never dare, but <laughs> yes, yes, mother. No, it's, it sounds terrible, but Jesus uses this term again, woman, in John chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus, at that time, when he uses that phrase again, he's hanging on a cross. He is having excruciating pain and suffering done to him. I don't know about you, if you've ever experienced, I've never experienced crucifixion, but if you've ever experienced any sort of pain, usually what happens is you focus on yourself and your own pain, right? 
Well, Jesus, on the moment of the cross, in excruciating pain and suffering, has the compassion and the, the awareness. And as the eldest son, he looks to his mother. He looks to his dear mother. He's about to die, and she's going to be destitute of her eldest son. And he looks at his mother, and he says, Woman, this is your son pointing to John, the, the gospel writer, his disciple. And John, this is your mother. In that moment, in his own pain and suffering, he has the awareness to look at his mother and to say, woman, I'm going to take care of you. John, you're responsible now to take care of my mom. And so the term itself is not necessarily rude. But he is in this instance being, as I said, disengaging. He is being distancing himself from his mother. And really it's that phrase, my hour has not yet come. That helps us to understand why, Jesus, are you so reluctant at this moment? And this, this hour becomes a technical phrase in the Gospel of John that refers to his death. And so Jesus is reluctant right now to do anything because ultimately Jesus is thinking about one thing and one thing only, about his mission, about his mission that he was sent to by his heavenly Father, that that's what's on his brain right now. And if he's going to do this sign, that means his mission is getting started. Because right now, up until this point, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has done nothing to manifest his glory. He has not made an arrival scene. He has not really done anything. But if he does something here, that means the ticker is going. The clock has begun. The hour is already in view in his mind. And so, Jesus later in John 5 says this, he only does what he sees his father doing. He is only going to do something if it's in line with the will of his father. And so when Jesus in fact does do something, he does turn the water to wine, he does save the wedding that's in crisis, he does what his mother has asked him to do, what he's saying here is he's not going to do it just because his mother has told him to do it. It's not because his mom has pinned his arm behind his back and tried to persuade him or something. It's because ultimately it's in line with the father's will. And so he's telling her is that I am here for one thing and one thing only, and that is to do the will of my heavenly father. And so what Jesus does here, he does a lot more than what his mother has intended. She just wants him to sa save the wedding from a crisis, but Jesus takes this opportunity to go beyond that. In fact, he does something. He does a sign. He does a sign, which is a miracle, but it's a miracle with a purpose. It's to point to something. He's not just doing a miracle for the sake of being fancy or having some great powers. He's doing a miracle to show something. He's doing it to show who he is and what his mission is about. 
And in this particular sign, he's showing that the king has come. The kingdom of God has arrived. This kingdom that all Jews, especially reading the Old Testament, have been waiting for. You see, there's some, there's some misunderstandings about this passage. It can be the, the frat boy's favorite passage of Jesus. Like, oh, Jesus is cool. He turns water into wine. He's my favorite or something. Like, that's, that's not what this passage is about. Or it, it can be a little bit interesting. You're like, it seems a bit magical or showy. Like, I get him healing the blind, right? A guy can't see. Jesus helps him. He's compassionate. He makes him see. But turning water to wine seems a bit odd. But that's because Jesus is doing something that careful readers of the Old Testament would immediately pick up on, that he's doing this purposely. He's doing this intentionally to show who he is, that the king is here and that the kingdom of God has come because this sign is about that king and his kingdom because the story is dripping with Old Testament allusions and messianic expectations. It's filled with it to the brim, just like those jars were filled with water. Before we get to, I'm going to read a passage out of Amos, chapter 9. The Old Testament has a two-age theology. So the first age begins after, let's just say, the fall of humanity in the garden. And this age has certain characteristics. First of all, it is a characteristic, it's got false worship. It's got humans running around in rebellion, so there's lots of sin, and therefore the wages of sin is death. So this age is ruled by sin and death, false worship. It's a broken world. This is not the world that God intended. It's the result of humanity's sin, and it all culminates, it all ends in death. That's the first age. The second age of which the prophetic hope is really found is this bright light on the horizon, which is the second age, which is brought by this Messiah figure, this Christ figure, which both of those terms, Hebrew, Greek, means anointed one. It is this king who's going to come and he's going to bring the rule and reign of God, that true worship, in contrast to this first age, true worship will be done. And it's going to be an age marked both with righteousness and justice. Things that are not being done in this present age will be done in this age because it's going to be ruled by this good king. That God is going to reign in this age and that it's going to be an age marked with abundance, prosperity, with life. And so the imagery around the messianic kingdom, there's lots of different imagery, but one of them is this abundance of wine idea. Because you see, wine is it's a symbol of joy, of happiness, of prosperity. And that's what the 
the prophets are looking for. That's what they're looking to, is that hope one day brought by this, this Messiah, this Christ. So I'm going to read out of Amos chapter 9, verse 13 through 15. Amos is a minor prophet, which means, it doesn't mean he's small. It just means he didn't write. He didn't write a bunch. So he's in this book called The Minor Prophets. And as prophets generally go in the Old Testament, they speak a lot of words of judgment. That's true. But there's some beautiful, some astoundingly wonderful moments of hope of light, of joy, of expectation, and it's always surrounding this king, this kingdom, that God is going to reign, that the way that things are right now is not the way it's going to be forever. But there's something good coming. And it's not dependent upon Israel or these other nations. It's dependent upon this king. It's dependent upon God himself coming and doing something. And the imagery, as we're going to read, has a lot of wine in it. So Amos 9, 13 through 15. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. The mountains shall drip Sweet wine in all the hills, all of them shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them says the Lord, your God. And so Jesus does something here that, that echoes back. And it says the mountains are going to drip with sweet wine. The hills are going to flow with it. Now, usually those are flowing with water, but now it's this picture of like, there's so much grapes, there's so much that it's like coming out. It's so too much to handle. It's an abundance of wine. And so Jesus does this intentionally He's, he's not just saving a wedding. Oh, no, he's doing far more than that. Because what he tells the servants to do is to fill six stone water jars, each of them holding 20 or 30 gallons. So, a little bit of math. That's 120 gallons minimum, because they're 20 and 30, you know, it's 120 gallons of water that's turned into wine. Now, I looked that up, and it's a, that's approximately 1,000 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. That's far more than what is necessary. But that's the point. It's an abundance. It's way more than they need. But that's the point. That's the kingdom of God. It is an abundance. 
But it's not, you see, it's not just a lot. It's the best as well. He says that in verse 10, but you have kept the good wine until now. So it's not just a quantity, that's a lot, but it's a quality, that's the best. And so what Jesus produces here is a quantity of quality. It's a ton, but it's also really, really good. Now, so often in our world, we have to make a choice between one or the other, right? You go quantity or you go quality. So, for instance, I work with junior hires. They like pizza. Which pizza do I buy? If I want quantity, I already heard it, you go with Little Caesars, which is, has changed, revolutionized youth ministry, Little Caesars. <laughs> Bless them. So if you want a lot of pizza, feed a lot of kids with not the best quality, you go with Little Caesars. But if you're like feeding your family or something or something smaller, you're probably not gonna buy that, right? You're gonna go with a better quality pizza. You fill in the blank of what pizza you think is quality because I don't want to start a pizza war, okay? But so often, that's the choice we got to make. Quantity or quality. But the kingdom of God, that's a false dichotomy. That's not one or the other. It's a both. It's a yes. It is a quantity of quality. And you know what? That shows what Jesus is revealing here is the heart of God and the nature of his kingdom. That we have a generous God. A God that wants to give us far more than we need. Far more than we can ever ask for. That God's heart is so brimming with goodness that he just wants to throw and shower a huge amount of blessings. He wants to give you 120 gallons. Just drench you. That is the God that we have. That's what he's showing. The heart of God and the nature of his kingdom. It's a generous God that we serve. It's a God that loves to give good gifts. And you know, this week, why don't, we need to think about the goodness of God, right? Our blessings. So often we think about what we don't have. When do we realize all that we do have and all that we have in Christ? This generous God that we serve. But I need to say one thing so I'm not misunderstood. Jesus, theologians will call this, is, it's inaugurated eschatology. So Jesus began something. He began the kingdom of God. The king has come. The kingdom of God is here, it's established, but it's not fully yet arrived. And that's important because there's this pernicious lie that's called the prosperity gospel. And that's like, if you just pray enough, if you just give enough money maybe, if you have enough faith, God will give you an abundance right now. Everything you wanted, a yacht, Corvette, whatever it is, you can have it if you have enough faith. That is a lie. That is a lie. And it's not, you might be laughing. It's not funny because it is peddled around the world. The kingdom of God is an abundant reality. There's no doubt about that. 
But it's an inaugurated eschatology, meaning that we talked about the two-age theology thing. So you have the, the, oh, the present age, the evil age, ruled by sin and death, and then you have the kingdom of God. What inaugurated eschatology is, is that this kingdom of God, there's an overlap between the ages. It's that he has started it. It is really here. It's not just a future thing. It is an already established thing, but yet there is more to come. There is more to come, and that there is still effects of sin and death here now. And so that needs to be said because I don't want you walking out of here thinking, yeah, God's going to give me an abundance. He is giving you. He has given you an abundance in Jesus Christ, and there is more to come in the future when the kingdom of God fully comes. But right now, we live in this present age, and this is the age where the wine always runs out. It always runs out, just like this wedding. This is the age where it always runs out. But we live in America, and America has an abundance. Walk in any store, any grocery store, any you know, electronic store like Amazon who has everything, we have an abundance. But you see in America, we have a false abundance. It's not a true abundance because in the end, we end up with nothing. Just like where we started. And the one thing that shows us that really we're empty, really we don't have, is death. Death shows us that we're all in the end empty. And sin and death, they're the rulers and they make you, you might, you might think you're the king, you might think you're living in abundance, but in the end, they make you bow to them. And they take everything from you. Everything. No matter how you live. I, I mean, I had the honor to being related to, I had a beautiful soul of an aunt named Joanne. And I, reason why, one of the reasons why I tell this story is because she's one of these people that you just need to talk about, to honor. And she was faithful to Jesus her whole life. She loved Jesus. And she had a husband who didn't know Jesus. But that didn't change the way she lived her life. She went to church. She served everywhere. She witnessed to him by her actions, by her life. And I'm, and I'm really shortening everything, but it took many, many, many years of living that way, of just being a faithful day in, day out follower of Jesus. But he eventually came to know the Lord because of her witness. When I was driving up to seminary, she would house me. She would feed me food before class, and then when class got over at, you know, late at night, I would come back to her house. She would have the bed ready. She would let me stay there. And in the morning, I had to get up and leave early to come back here. And she would have this breakfast to go bag for me. Like, that's just the kind of person that she was. She was a beautiful soul. Well, she, she contracted an illness late in my seminary career, or whatever you want to call it, and she physically withered away. I mean, she still had that bright smile, 
that sweet spirit, that love Jesus, but physically she's dying. And so we were notified that she didn't have much time left. And so we got to go up and say our final goodbyes. And at this point in her life, she couldn't talk at all. And so we were standing by her deathbed, looking into her, and she's shallowy, shallowy breathing. And we say our, our goodbyes, and she couldn't talk, but her eyes, she was conscious. She knew what we were saying, and she, you could just tell she wanted to say something. She couldn't but her eyes spoke of, of love. And so I don't know if you've ever had that in your life where you've seen a beautiful soul suffer, but it's hard to watch them die. And you never feel so powerless and so weak when someone is dying in front of you. And there's nothing that you can ever do to reverse it. There's no feelings of affection there's no words that you can say that's going to change anything, that's going to reverse the inevitable. And so we're deceived in America because we think we have an abundance, but we're empty. And we still live in that age of sin and death, and they rule and they reign, but they don't have ultimate reign. And that's the good news of the kingdom of God. That's the good news that Jesus is showing right here in this passage. He's revealing that the king has come, that the kingdom is here, and he does it by transforming our emptiness into an abundance. He does it by changing this water into wine. That Jesus, he went through death. He, he took our sin, and he went through death, just like every single one of us have to except he came out on the other side. He conquered death, and he's alive. And all of those who put their faith in Jesus, in him, the same thing that's gonna happen to us, that we will live forever. And so we still feel the effects of sin. We all die. We're all marked people. We're all heading to the grave. But that's not the end because Jesus is the already. Do you understand the power of that? Jesus is the already. He is the new creation. It's already started. It's not just pure future. It is already begun in Jesus. And so our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in our works. It's in faith in him because he's the one that's already gone through it and been risen from the dead. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's the first fruit. He's the first of it. And all of those who believe in him, who belong to him, the same thing is going to happen. That means our God reigns. That sin and death are no longer the kings. They're no longer the lords. They're no longer our masters. And so again, 1 Corinthians 15, where, oh, death is your sting. We say that as we go to the grave, knowing that's not the end, but we're coming back up because Jesus Christ did that. And if I'm in Christ, then I too have life eternal. That's the quantity of quality, eternal life. 
It's not only a long period of time, it's the best life, and that's what Jesus has provided for us. And what's really cool is that Jesus takes these pots, these pots that's used for Jewish purification, and that's what he changes into wine. Because that's the way that they used to try to make themselves clean. But Jesus has transformed that into his celebratory wine of the kingdom. And so that's declaring that our sins are forgiven. Do you know that? I know we've come in with guilt and shame. We have done wrong, every one of us, and we feel ashamed about who we are. But that's why you have to preach the gospel. The good news is that your sin is forgiven in Jesus, that your life is secure in him. Take that in this morning and that the death is not final and that Jesus has this power that he can even transform death. That the casket, which was once a symbol of failure, a symbol of death, is now transformed into a doorway into heaven, a doorway into the presence of God. And so my last words to my aunt as she's dying, as she is slowly running out of time, she's running out of breath, just like everything in this present age, it always runs out. Our breath runs out. Our time runs out but I look her in the eyes as she's dying and I'm, and I'm saying, I'm looking at her through the eyes of faith, through the eyes of the kingdom, through the eyes of what Jesus has accomplished for us and I can say, you're gonna hear these words very soon. Well done, good and faithful servant. And that she in this moment, as so many of us who've lost loved ones in Christ, They are with the Lord. And that's the power of Jesus and what he did for us. That he takes our emptiness and he transforms it into his abundance. And that abundance is a good abundance. And as I read already, he says, everyone serves the good wine first and then the poor. But you have kept the good wine until now. And that's the shocking thing. They didn't need a sommelier, a wine expert, to tell them this is good stuff. This is the best stuff. The shocking thing is, is it's last. He says, this is how the world does it. You serve the good stuff first. Then when people, uh, you know, not, they're not able to tell between what's good and bad, then they serve the cheaper stuff. He says, no, 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 you flipped everything upside down. You've done it opposite. You've served the poorer stuff first and you've kept the best until last. Christians, that's the message of hope. The best is for last. And if you've walked into here thinking, your life, your good days are just behind you. You have nothing else ahead that's good. If you come in here empty, if you've come in here hopeless, Do you hear this message this morning? The best is for last. The kingdom of God, that is the reality that's coming. 
that is available now in Jesus that is coming in its fullness later, that is what's coming. This is a foretaste of it. The best is for last. And maybe some of you, your, your best days are right now. The sun is shining. You're getting married in 55 days. <laughs> or it's, that's just me. But you're, it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of what is to come, that God wants to increase our joys, not lessen it. And here's the beautiful thing. Take your greatest moments of life. God's whispering in your heart, this is awesome, but there are greater things to come. There are even greater things in store because God is a God who loves to give good gifts and he loves to give an abundance of good gifts to his children. That he is a good God and he wants to increase our joy, not lessen it. But we have to believe in him to receive it. And it says at the end, his disciples believed in him. They believe that Jesus is this king. Do we believe in him? John 20, 31, the gospel writer, he gives a purpose statement for everything he's written in his book. He says this in John 20, 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you believe that Jesus is this king? That every story that he's writing, he's asking us this question, do you believe in him? And if you believe in him, you will have life in his name. And as Jesus said in John 10, he has come to bring, to give life and life abundant if we receive it. And so give up. Give up your emptiness. Give up the things that are just going to leave you empty. The things of this world, the things of this present age that you put your hope in, that you think this is going to save me, this is going to be my hope in life, this is going to bring me joy. It always runs out. Come to Jesus. He transforms our emptiness and turns it into his abundance. So receive that abundant life today. And if you haven't received Jesus and the life that he offers to all of us, you can receive that this morning. After I pray, you can come up, you can talk to me, I'll be up here. Elders and deacons will also be up here with me. We'd love to pray with you, to give you a chance to receive that abundant life today. And if you do, and for those who have received it, Right, it is today. But it's a day that goes into eternity where every day is better than the one before because the best is for last. Let's pray. Father, we are, we really are in awe of your goodness. We see a picture of your heart not only in the transformation of abundance, but in Jesus. God, we thank you for the gifts that you give to us. We thank you for life. We thank you for every moment 
Help us to be grateful people. Help us to be people of joy, of hope. Help us to be people who celebrate you and your goodness. We thank you for being a good God to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.